we have so many different interests. And sometimes we have these interests for a really short space of time, but we always pick up a lesson. We always learn something from it. And just all this stuff that builds up in the back of our mind. And I feel like then the second level kicks in of our ADHD brain is that we tend to be really good at seeing patterns. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. All right, I would like to share with you this review from a listener named Frederica on the Apple Podcast platform in Denmark. It's entitled, Thank You. This podcast is saving my life, and I'm only two episodes in. It is truthfully helping me view myself differently. I get to understand myself more, accept myself more, and love myself more. I got my diagnosis seven months ago. I'm 27 years old. My son is five years old. He's starting his ADHD journey, and this podcast helps me with understanding and tools not only for myself, but then for teaching my son. I hope that one day I get to meet you. All the love from Denmark, Frederica, or you can just call me Fred. Fred, this is so wonderful to hear, and I'm really thrilled and grateful for your feedback. I feel like my own diagnosis has helped tremendously when it comes to my parenting and helping my own children, so I am beyond happy to know that these conversations have helped you with this too, because, you know, parenting is really fucking hard. I hope someday we can meet too. You know, I love getting the chance to meet so many incredible neurodivergent women through this podcast. And I feel like community and conversation have been so healing and such a huge part of my own ADHD journey. I always want all of you to meet each other. That's really why I started the Women in ADHD online community. It is truly a global community of incredible women and adults who are socialized as girls. It is just the sweetest, nicest, most supportive group We also have live monthly Q&As with ADHD experts, which are always recorded so you can watch them anytime. We recently had a great one on ADHD and sleep, and we have another one coming up in November on decluttering with ADHD. We also have monthly drop-in virtual office hours with Jules, our in-house ADHD therapist. And of course, there's the virtual book club, which is happening right now. So shout out to all of the incredible participants in the current one. I just love hosting these groups so much. I'll be hosting another book club in January, so make sure to sign up for the wait list. All of that information can be found over at womenandadhd.com. And of course, that link is always in the show notes. We would love to have you join us. Okay, here we are at episode 109, in which I interview Miranda Carlu. Miranda is a freelance business analyst living in Belgium. She's worked for a Fortune 500 company and other large corporations, and she's also recently started her training as an ADHD coach and is preparing to consult with her first client on how to achieve neurodiversity inclusion in the workplace. Miranda and I talk all about the assets that come with having a neurodivergent brain at work, including creative problem solving, the ability to quickly spot patterns, and our talent for failing well. 
We also talk about some of the common barriers that exist around recruitment and receiving workplace accommodations. Miranda and I are both pandemic diagnoses, so we had a lot in common. This was a really, really wonderful conversation. I loved Miranda's insights, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Hi, Miranda. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. You're my first guest from Belgium, so I'm very excited uh, for for that. I love our global community. Um, So welcome. Thank you. We're just going to jump right in. I'm really curious about your diagnosis. You said uh, you mentioned in our correspondence that you were diagnosed at the age of 36 with inattentive ADHD. So what was going on? You're a mom of three, uh, also a pandemic diagnosis like me. So uh, what was happening in your life that you first really started thinking I should I should look into this? Yeah, as you said, I'm a pandemic diagnosis. I feel like what wasn't going on, (laughs) I'd literally just had my third kid um, a month before the first lockdown. So kind of all of my plans and my expectations of what was going to happen, I felt like I'm, you know, I'm a seasoned mom, I know how this goes, you know, I'll take the first year off, I'll just focus on baby, kind of go with the flow. But all of a sudden, I was at home with all three kids. So I was kind of juggling homeschooling my eldest. And then my toddler was super bored. She's like three. And, you know, it was like, why is mom trying to teach math? And this baby is taking up all her time. And at that point, I was just like, wow, okay, what do I do? Like all of the structure disappeared, all of my uh, everything I'd imagined um, of what this this time with new baby is going to be like, it just kind of flew out the window. And I knew that other people were struggling. Like I was very well aware, you know, everyone's having a hard time, you know, and something like this has never happened before. But it did feel like this was a little bit more than that. I was literally, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I didn't know who I was anymore. I kind of lost all my balls that I've tried to to balance up in the air for so long. All of a sudden, they were just falling one by one. And it got to a point where it's like, something's not right. Like I'd always known I was different, but I was like, I really need to look into this a bit more. So it was kind of two things, really. Initially, I was actually thinking I might be autistic. And I read a few articles. Some of them did resonate slightly, but it didn't feel 100% right. And I was talking to my brother one day and he kind of he'd just gone through burnout and he mentioned that his psychologist said that she she thought that he might have ADHD. And I was like, really? Like, I I just never, ever considered this. And then, you know, I I got really curious and I started reading up on ADHD and especially how it manifests in women. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) all the light bulbs went off and um, it was like, oh, my goodness, this is it. This matches it 1000 percent. It explains everything about my life up until now. Right. Almost in an unsettling way. I I almost sort of feel like it was the answer to so many seemingly random struggles in my life that I was like, am I am I making all of this up? Like, am I looking for these connections where they aren't there? And I still feel that way sometimes. Like, it's overwhelming to me still. Years later, just uncovering more and more and more about like how ADHD, the fingers of ADHD, like creep into so many elements of our life. Yeah. It's everywhere. I mean, that's the thing, because it's not just a diagnosis. It's almost like an identity that you get given because you realize that every part of you has been impacted in some way by this brain wiring. And 
yeah, there's really no getting around it. So <laughs> it was quite overwhelming at first to realize, oh my gosh, this is not just a part, it's everything and it's there to stay. So, wow, that's it was a lot to take in at first. Yeah. And I, and some, that's something I think is really difficult to articulate when you're just speaking to people other than other women who've been diagnosed in adulthood is just how profound it is. Like you said, it's not just a diagnosis. It's of, of a disorder or a disease, right? Like this is a profound shift in, in your identity. It's a profound shift in like looking over the course of your life and realizing how much you've been struggling and that you weren't even acknowledging it, but then also this sort of then looking forward at, at, at this kind of new look at yourself. Like it's so, it's just so profound. And I honestly, I remember so many times during the beginning of the pandemic, just being so grateful I didn't have a newborn (laughs) Uh, because uh, I just like my heart went out to all of you who, like you said, were struggling with the different needs of children at vastly different stages and having to, you know, and I've talked about this so many times about like feeling like you just are in suspended animation with just having to constantly cater and just, and, you know, so many times where I would be like, I just fed you. Is it really time to, you know, is it really time to feed you again? And they'd be like, oh yeah, no, I guess that's right. A few hours have gone by. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's surviving, but only just barely surviving. Um, I don't think it's an existence that anyone really would sign up to. It was, you know, it was, it was extremely hard. And um, also he wasn't sleeping well. So there was sleep deprivation, top of everything. And there's no escape because there is nowhere to go, nowhere where I could have like the older kids run around for a little bit or anything. You know, all of that was just gone. So yeah, it was, it was difficult. But at the same time, you know, I, I keep thinking, well, maybe I wouldn't have come to this diagnosis if not for the pandemic. And I think that in it, in a way has also been been a blessing because that allowed me to really kind of look back at everything that I'd gone through and, and let go of so much shame, you know, guilt. And and there was a lot of that. Like I, there were articles I was reading and I was just crying hysterically, like the full on ugly cry of, oh my God, it's not me. Like, you know, there's an actual reason for this. And also it, it led me to becoming a lot more open with people around me like for so long it's something that that I'd hidden it was like almost like a d- dirty little secret like on the outside people had this very different image of me and I even my partner who I've been with uh, 10 years now I ended up telling him things that he had no idea about like he was like I did not know how did I not know this and I was like well I'm still ashamed to really own up to any of this because I don't know people just had this idea of this very strong person. She has it all together. She's successful. She's very smart. But on the inside, I I just felt like I was, you know, always really, really, really struggling. Everything felt so much harder than for everybody else. And I just didn't understand why. Yeah. And the metaphor of the swan is so poignant, right? Like the idea of like uh, above the water feeling like you have it all together and everybody sees this version of yourself. And then you're madly paddling underneath and nobody sees that part of you behind the scenes. But I think also like we're working so hard that we don't even have the time or the opportunity to really think about what do we need, how much we're struggling, like the struggle to keep up takes over everything. And so you don't even have time to stop and be like, what do I need? What's happening? What's going on? Like, there's no time for self-reflection or self-actualization. And and I think that's something that 
when you step back after a diagnosis can also like, it's just so overwhelming where you're like, I didn't even have a language for what I needed. I, I didn't know how to advocate, right? Like all of that, the opportunity is suddenly there for you to be like, oh, this is, this is what I need right now. <laughs> Definitely. Thinking back now, as you said, I have the language now. During the pandemic, I think I probably reached like some kind of burnouts even though I wasn't working at the time, but there was like a, maybe an emotional burnout because I, I honestly didn't feel like doing anything anymore. Like it's I kind of everything kind of ground to a halt. I wasn't really interested in anything. I was literally only surviving. I remember my partner saying, oh, you probably need a hobby or something like an outlet. And I'm like, a hobby? Like, first of all, I wouldn't even know what I'm interested in right now. I don't even know who I am right now, let alone taking on some new thing and then like you know, how, how would I even have time or the mental space for that? Like, I just, it was just so far removed from what I needed at that moment. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> but I even think in those moments too, like I'm at a place right now where my husband, I could totally see my husband saying something like that. And I could be like, yeah, no, that's not what I need right now. But I also feel like per, before my diagnosis, I probably would have been like, maybe he's right. Maybe that is what I read. Like the level of self, self-doubt self was so high prior to my diagnosis too, where I was like, I don't know, maybe that is what I need. I should try that. Was it, you know, and, and always kind of chasing after the advice from other people and then being like, why is this not working? Why is nothing working? So yeah, that realization of like knowing yourself better so that you can say like, yeah, that's, that's the last thing I need right now. So after your diagnosis, I know it's, um, it is so profound and so, uh, so much grief and all of that, but like, what are some examples of things you looked over the course of your life, you know, and looked back and maybe in your childhood where you were like, oh yeah, the signs, the signs were there all along. Honestly, I feel like I could talk for 10 hours and I, I still wouldn't run out of examples. Um, you know, that's the beauty of hindsight. But um, I think as a kid, I was that super socially awkward, painfully shy kid. I was uh, labeled quite early on in um, primary school or elementary, as you'd say in the U.S., um, as gifted. So um, I scored really high on all the IQ tests. And they, they even said at one point to my parents, you know, we think you should skip a grade. And interestingly, they they declined because they thought I would miss my friends, not realizing that I had virtually no friends. Like I, <laughs> I didn't know how to. So um, I really struggled with that social connection. I always felt very different, uh, very much, you know, lived kind of in my own little world. I very much hyper-focused on books, so I was always reading, like literally any free moment I had, I would be reading a book. Once I finished a book, I'd be on to the next one. I'd beg my mom, can we go back to the library? I need more books. i disappear into that fantasy world, and I guess probably because I didn't really know how to communicate with other kids, I didn't really understand. It might sound really strange, but like when they would play games, I wouldn't understand why they found it enjoyable like I I didn't get the point a lot of the time like but why are we doing this but this doesn't make sense like it just did not interest me one bit and I was much more interested in really profound topics you know like I wanted to talk about the meaning of life or you know why are there wars in the world or who am I going to be when I grow up my world was was very different from from the world of the kids around me so I, I never really managed to bridge that gap until I was much older and then, strangely, when I hit puberty, it's almost like 
some switch flipped. I don't know if it's the influx of hormones, but something happened and made me a lot more outgoing to the point that I got a nickname of the diva. I became like the loudest person in the room and I was life of the party, first on the dance floor, last to leave, never wanted to leave, by the way. I was like, I don't want to go home. I was that person, uh, everything in an excess, you know, and yeah, did a lot of really stupid, impulsive things. I guess it's almost like that's like the flip side of my ADHD. Like it became a lot more, um, I guess, uh, external. One thing that I also found, and uh, I don't know if this is the same for other ADHD people, but I the, the people that I would gravitate towards were always people who were also in some way or, uh, or form um, an outsider. So it could, you know, like um, the LGBTQ community, or it could be like um, ethnic minorities. Like I, I, I always was hanging out with like, um, you know, the one black kid in school or like the one gay person in school that we had because it's quite a small, small community. Like those are the people that I, I just felt closest to. And I think it's Maybe because on some subconscious level, like I also felt different. Uh, my struggles were very different. But yeah, I just kind of felt really drawn to people who were also in some way uh, different or on the outside. And um, yeah, I still feel feel that way today. So, um, you know, I know we say, oh, we, we are best when we find our tribe, when we find other neurodivergent people. But for me, the same was true with people, you know, her... Uh, an outsider in different ways, really. And um, uh, ooh, some impulsive things I've done. Um, one day, I think I was, so I was, uh, I think you, the equivalent of a junior in high school, I decided I'd had enough of school. I was bored out of my mind. I felt like I was in prison. I was doing well. I was, you know, I was in kind of more like a gifted program. So I was studying like Greek and Latin and advanced maths and all the all the stuff. But I just couldn't. One day I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and uh, so I dropped out. I still remember the principal just looked at me and she was like really condescending. It was like, you're never going to make it. Like, why are you doing this? Nobody does this. And um, but I'd, I'd done my research and I found out that I could actually graduate by being an independent student. And all I had to do was make sure that I went to the curriculum and then did my exams. Uh, I had to travel to the capital, very random, and do my exams there. And that's what I did. So, you know, I, I didn't look back, you know, quit school. And um, to be very honest, I didn't really do much studying until like the days before the exam. And, and then just did the exam and that was it. Like I'd sleep till midday and <laughs> all, all that stuff. So that's one thing I'd say uh, that's another sign. Another sign was, you know, in relationships, be very impulsive, had this boyfriend, followed him to America when I was 19. The three months there, didn't really check the visa requirements properly, ended up deported. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a lot of kind of crazy stories like that. It's kind of a, a bit of a thread throughout like my 20s. I would say it was more like focused on jobs. So in jobs, I would, you know, I would always kind of dive in at the deep end. Um, I remember one job I applied for and I didn't really understand what the job was about at all. I had no clue. Went into the interview, kind of blabbed my way through it, got hired. And on day one, I was like, I don't know how to do any of this. Like, this is insane. I'm this. Someone's going to notice. But this crazy thing is they didn't like and then after about a week, I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. And uh, about a, a year into that job, my manager came up to me and he's like, yeah, I'm, I kind of want to make a career change. And so I'd like you to take over the team. And I'm like, 
what do you mean? I'm the youngest person here. I've only been here a year. What are you talking about? And and looking back now, I think he might have been neurodivergent as well, because that's probably why he hired me, because I can't see what other qualifications I had. I had no college degree. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but he saw something. And I think maybe he recognized something uh, in me that he, you know, he himself maybe had. And um, I think that experience taught me a really important lesson. And it is that when I apply for jobs, I need to stop looking for a 100% match, uh, which is what women tend to do, you know, as opposed to men, where if 40% matches, they're like, hmm, maybe I should try that one. Uh, whereas women don't, right? They want to really 100% match the, the the job requirements. But that experience taught me that actually I don't, you know, if something is interesting to me and I think I have, you know, some transferable skills that might be applicable, then I will go for it and uh, see what happens. The worst they can do is say no, right? And that's also been, I guess, uh, kind of a pattern in my my career and uh, I ended up doing so many lateral moves you know I think very ADHD of me I instead of going for the promotion and becoming the manager and then the manager's manager it's always been more of a hmm I wonder what they do in that department you know let me go look and see what how they do things and oh I wonder what that side of the business is like and uh, yeah which is ultimately what led me to my my current job as a, a business analyst. Oh, wow. Oh, man. You know, it's so funny how how we have that tendency to, uh, you know, frame ourselves through a neurotypical lens when it comes to our life choices, right? So like you're describing, you know, how you were sort of fed up, you wanted a more efficient way, you figured out you did your research in terms of high school. And like, you know, you're like, I did my research, this seems like a better option for me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all the way to the capital, I'm going to do this. And yet, through a neuro, you know, through a neurodivergent lens, that sounds right. It's like, this is the most efficient way. This is something that feels right for me. But through a neurotypical lens, you're like, I'm a high school dropout, and I have to live with that for the rest of my life, right, in terms of my self concept and how, like, if we could just figure out if we could have just figured out how to like reframe our choices through this more accepting, obvious neurodivergent lens how different our lives would have been. But instead, we're kind of forced to think about ourselves through these other point of view, which then frames who we are as like, oh, I didn't go to college. I'm a high school dropout. So this is like how who I am on paper is so different from who I feel like inside, right? And then we end up feeling so profoundly misunderstood and, and you know, all of that. So interesting. And and also just like our, our nonlinear paths to... <laughs> are are so wonderful like you know it just i feel like i i want to you know scold all of us for the the way that we kind of undermine ourselves and how and and the way that we get from point a to point b is so wonderful and weird and and you know we're so down on ourselves sometimes there was something else. oh oh gravitating toward the underdog too, right? I just wanted to comment on that because I felt like I, you know, I've interviewed so many women who are in the health profession or, you know, in social work, right? And I think there is, like you said, you really touched on something about like gravitating toward people who suffer, right? Because of that, unta- you know, that we know on some some instinctual level, we know how hard it our life is, or the, or how much we are suffering, and and we feel that desire to like help others, um, you know, to to kind of unite with each other in that in that universal sense of suffering that I think, yeah, you know, the feeling some, misunderstood, you know, yeah, basically. yeah, the, uh, never really quite being understood, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 
All right. So anyway, those were my notes. <laughs> I was like tr- <laughs> madly being like, oh, and this and this and this. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference health with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. Did your family react or your husband? Like, did you, you know, when you had this diagnosis, what was their reaction? Um, so, um, I, I think for my brother, um, you know, uh, I, I immediately told him cause I was like, well, you know, you kind of got me here. So in a way I was like, you should probably get your diagnosis now, like, like properly go for it. And he did. Um, and he ended up with a dual diagnosis of, um, uh, autism and ADHD, uh, which for him, I think also really was quite validating and explained a lot of his experience. Um, and then, um, I think my partner, he, at first he was, I think when I told him I was going for, for, um, an assessment, I think he was a little bit skeptical because I got really quite obsessed with it. And he was like, oh, here we go. (laughs) There she goes again. But then when I actually explained it to him and he ended up uh, reading a book about it, you know, the ADHD effect on marriage, he was like, this is you, this is us. This is, this explains so much because, you know, I don't mind being very transparent. We'd, we'd had quite a bit of couples counseling because obviously um, being with a partner that has ADHD is uh, not always uh, plain sailing. And um, we we worked a lot on communication and things would get better for a bit. And then they'd kind of go back to being not so okay. And I think that there was like this missing piece and having this diagnosis is, has has really like clarified why we kept getting stuck in the same patterns because, you know, he could see all the challenging bits in our relationship, but he couldn't see why we could never quite get over them. And 
Yeah, so he understands me a lot better now. He understands that, you know, I am not trying to be obnoxious or, you know, difficult. And it's an ongoing process, right? I think any relationship is 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 constant work and, and commitment and compromise as well. But it's, it's given us, uh, as you said earlier as well, you know, more tools and more more words that we didn't have before to to explain things to each other and to come at things from a different angle. So, yeah, it, I think it's been very helpful. I don't know, you know, where we would be without this diagnosis, to be honest, because, you know, we probably just continue to get stuck on, until we'd be like, you know what, maybe we need to like move on from this. And my mum was interesting as well because she can actually recognize a few things in my story, uh, not to the same degree, but um, like the being super forgetful, being a bit disorganized, uh, uh, having trouble following conversations at times, things like that. And she also feels that it's gotten a lot worse since she uh, hit menopause, for example. So I was like, oh, maybe, you know, you know, I, I don't, she says at this point, she doesn't really want to do anything with it, but, you know, she well, except for maybe get more information. I'm pretty sure my dad had ADHD, but he was also a narcissist. So we've not uh, had any contact for probably about six, seven years now. And I know that's also kind of a common theme, right? I see all the time on like the ADHD forums about um, the link between narcissism and ADHD kids and and trauma and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was true for me, for sure. He was the classic narcissist. But I also think he had ADHD and he was also dyslexic. So I think there's a lot of neurodivergence going on in, in, in my family. Um, and it's been nice to actually be able to to openly communicate and talk about it now. Like at family gatherings, I sometimes get really overwhelmed, you know, with a lot. My family is super loud. So it'd be like really noisy and like, you know, a lot of people talking to me at the same time. And they now know that sometimes I'll put in my my earbuds, you know, um, uh, or I'll like go sit in a quiet corner for a bit, you know. Or, and um, yeah, so it's it's nice that they are more mindful of that now. Uh, I think especially for my brother, it's been nice as well because he feels like he can also, you know, be more open about what he needs in these moments. And yeah, so it's been good. Yeah, right. I. I, I've been trying to um, take the advice of a, a guest, uh, Christine Syrad. She was talking about how her own diagnosis has helped her have a lot more grace and acceptance of the family members who are living life still undiagnosed, right? And and how, you know, what it must be like to have that confusion around some of these behaviors and ha trying to have a little more grace. And I was like, oh, I really need to apply that. I really need to like take that on uh, because I, you know, I have the same similar, similar situation with a narcissistic parent and, you know, realizing how difficult it must be to feel so much of the shame that so many of us do and to hold that and kind of how do I how do I honor that and accept that and have grace for that but at the same time like still you know have boundaries in terms of who I am and what I need but Evie you know it just reminded me of like when you were talking about couples counseling you know that's another example of you know counseling you know my husband and I have been through couples counseling absolutely and we always feel 
like we have to be private about it. Like, like we have to hold, you know, that we have to be private about the fact that our marriage isn't perfect as if anyone's is. And like, you know, and that's another thing where I had to really reframe where we had to reframe it for ourselves, which is like couples counseling is when you have something wonderful that you want to work on to make it better. You love each other so much that you want to do this. You want, you know, but, but counseling is something that we often look at. Therapy is something we look at where it's like, oh no, you have to, something has to be seriously wrong with you before you get help. Right. And I'm like, how, messed up is that <laughs> that that is like that we look at things through that lens so i also just wanted to throw that out there just be like there's so much of that reframing that we have to do where we're like no this is actually like something tremendous that we need to commend ourselves for as opposed to sort of being like oh no nobody should know about this secret shame no i mean we're we're using the the difficult road you know and that's something to be proud of you know we're we're you know it's showing commitment and not giving up easily. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the best decision is to let go. But I think you don't know that until you actually put in the work. And I think even for individual therapy as well, I've done that as well. And I, I think it, most people would probably benefit from that in some point of their lives. Um, you know, for me, it was uh, mostly um, to deal with kind of my daddy issues initially. But that's also interesting because I remember at some point I tried to bring up to my therapist like, yes, I have this thing where I really want to do something and I know I need to do it, but somehow I can't do the thing and I don't know why. And she was so confused by it. She had no idea what I was talking about and she kind of like, you know, almost ignored it and moved on from the conversation. And I was like... Hmm. So, and I kind of just left it, right? And then it didn't resurface until the pandemic. It's like, you know, I really need to do something about this now because it's not normal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I feel like I talk about that a lot in terms of being diagnosed with depression and how, like, for me, you know, for so many of us who are diagnosed with depression, the desire is is there the you know overwhelmingly the desire to do the thing is there. It's the incapable, you know, just feeling incapable of doing it and and that and now you're right it is can be really difficult to describe in to somebody who really who's never been there um now you know i all in terms of like asking for help too you know we talk a lot about i, I question a lot about like the north american individualism and this idea of like the work ethic and and how needing help is 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 basically failure right like so how why it's so difficult for us to even ask for help because it feels like that's the admission of defeat and and how that, you know, I'm like, does this all come down to the Protestant work ethic and, and individualism? So I'm curious, like, is that a, a, a pain point or a source of shame in Belgium? Is that as a woman, like, it, how how is neurodiversity viewed or even just, you know, accommodations? How are they viewed in Belgium? Um the honest answer is I have absolutely no idea. I feel like <laughs> I'm always the worst when it comes to like being an expert of my own country. And I think it's because I've always been more interested in looking outward to other cultures. <laughs> I've always kind of immersed myself in that. And, you know, I, I think Belgian women in general are quite independent. Um, they're quite, you know, so um, I don't think, you know, and there is that talk of self-care. It's definitely very much a hot topic. So I think there is that. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm looking at it now uh, from the perspective of my kids, because, you know, having three kids, I'm obviously obsessing over everything they do and wondering, do they need help? You know, do they need to look at getting them support? Um, you know, that that's kind of been my focus lately as well. Um, it's it's hard to tell because my eldest, sometimes I feel like she's my mini me in so many ways, although she's 
great at the social aspect, but she's also very distractible. She's, um, you know, all over the place. Uh, she's quite impulsive, super emotional. Um, and then my my uh, youngest daughter, she's she's very very introverted. She's um, like sometimes I I suspect more like uh, autism in her um, because she struggles with social connection also uh, a lot. Um, and she's, she's very much into her own like fantasy world. And, um, yeah, she, you know, it's, 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 you know, I try not to put any labels on them. I'm more interested in, okay, when do they need support? And if, if they do need support, how do I get it? So I'm trying to like over communicate with their teachers at times to make sure that they're aware, um, of, you know, my diagnosis and things that I witness in them. And can they please keep an eye on them? Because, you know, my heart gets really heavy when I think of all the challenges that they could encounter um, with this. Um, so, yeah, I, we, we actually there's another aspect as well, is that we only just moved here uh, back here from the UK. Uh, I lived in the UK for 10 years. Um, so we've only really been living here for one year. Um, so we're all still kind of like it's all very new, even though I'm from here. Yeah, I'm still kind of getting used to everything again as well. So there is that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm always curious uh, because, you know, there is so much question about like, what is the source and what is, you know, how is this viewed and what, what is unique to my situation and what is universal. And so, yeah, I always have, I always say the more I learn about more ADHD, the more questions I have. <laughs> and even like you said, I say, you know, I'm also on the similar journey with like, what is autism and, and where there's so much overlap, but at the same time, sort of feeling like, okay, like, there's certain things like ADHD feels like the answer to so many things that that profound sense of discovery. I didn't I don't have that around autism. And so I'm like, why is that? Is that because I'm reluctant? Am I ableist? Am I, you know, do I feel like I can't, you know, like I'm afraid of it? Is it stigma? Or do I really just not like relate to it on that fundamental level? I don't know. Like, there's just so many more questions <laughs> that never stop. I feel like this is an area where I I really want people to kind of maybe focus like the experts to focus on because you know it's a question that comes up a lot you know enough to make me think hmm, maybe there is something there I mean for me that was actually the initial thing that I looked into because I can see quite a few things the fact that I really struggle with social connection I I feel like I don't always like if I hear instructions I don't always catch the nuances I get overstimulated extremely easily like I really struggle with loud noises crowded places some at times uh, I didn't always used to but I think that the more executive dysfunction goes to like kids in the household I feel like the harder that aspect of my life has become so I, I really feel that a lot more now where I know that the things I used to be able to do I'm not able to do them uh, as much it's been hard because you know you, you kind of feel like oh I feel my my life has become a bit more limited so you know it's not always an easy thing to accept but at the same time you know at least now I know how to like prevent burnout a bit better or I know how to protect my boundaries a little bit better so it's it's positive in that sense um, but I think the reason why a lot of us struggle with understanding do I also have a bit of autism is because I think one of them tends to be more dominant and for me that's for sure the ADHD and sometimes they kind of um, balance each other out in some ways where like, ah, the ADHD has actually made this autism trait a lot less noticeable. So I think that makes it especially difficult to probably to diagnose, but also for ourselves to, to really understand, is this me? Yes or no? Um, 
Mm -hmm. Or even like we were talking about with reaching puberty and, you know, suddenly kind of shifting and then seeking the stimulation, seeking the excitement and how, you know, it's like, well, is that a way of you kind of bridging that gap or managing or finding solutions? Or is that masking? And at what cost? I think it definitely came at a cost. I, I honestly do feel like, um, you know, it's also when I started to self-medicate, you know, at times with alcohol and things like that, or, you know, the wrong foods. And yeah, I think part of that was me trying to deal with all this stuff about myself that I didn't understand. Um, and uh, for a long time, I was like, you know, people call me diva, but I don't feel like that is who I truly am. And I actually had this conversation uh, with one one of the very few friends I have from that time who um, I said, you know, sometimes I feel like a fraud, like and I've always almost like avoid meeting up with you because I feel like when you see me, you expect to see the diva that I was. But that's not me anymore. Like I, I definitely don't relate to that anymore. It's It's not who I am. And it's like. Yeah, but that's not why I, that's not why we liked you. You know, yes, we had fun and we called you the diva and was like this running joke. But honestly, you know, the thing that we appreciated about you was the fact that you didn't seem to care about conforming. Like the norm wasn't really that important to you. You always said exactly what you thought. You did exactly what you thought was right, whether it was, you know, crazy or impulsive or insane. You just did it and you fully owned it. And even if you made a mistake, you own that too. And and I think that's, you know, that was really powerful to me because it's, it, it made me see it in, in a lot more positive way that actually that is true. And, and I think to this day, I kind of, you know, I feel a bit rebellious whenever people say, oh, this is how something should be done. I'm like, is it though? You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's how I say, right. I feel like we keep coming back to this theme of reframing um, in terms of how we viewed something versus how we should have been viewing it. <laughs> I wanted to go back to, um, you know, your line of work and, you know, as a business analyst, because you had mentioned that also in your email, like, how, how do you feel like ADHD has been an asset in, in your particular line of work yeah for sure so um i think one thing i noticed in people with adhd or at least you know what i can only assume from what i read on the forums and the facebook groups is that we have so many different interests and sometimes we have these interests for a really short space of time but we always pick up a lesson we always learn something from it and just all this stuff that builds up in the back of our mind and i feel like then the second level kicks in of our adhd brain is that we tend to be really good at seeing patterns so you know we have all this information that we can draw on and then we start seeing links between them that maybe neurotypicals you know don't find as obvious and I think being a business analyst really requires you to have a very flexible brain and way of thinking. Like you need to be able to look at things from all angles. You need to have an open mind and think of solutions. But at the same time, you need to see all the possible challenges or things that could go wrong in a process, in a product. Um, yeah. And uh, also you have to deal with a lot of very different stakeholders. You know, it's, it's usually you're talking to very technical people, then you're talking to more business people who are like um, subject matter experts. Then sometimes you're talking to customers and then some managers of a team, and they all have these different ideas of what they think should be done. So they all come with their own story, their own 
insights, their own requirements. And as a business analyst, you have to be able to hear their message, filter out what's relevant, and then kind of, you know, just apply some logic and see the pattern there and go, actually, I think this is something that could work for everybody, or this is never going to work because nobody seems to have thought of A, B, and C. Um, and um, interestingly, uh, it, my my partner, I don't want to use the word hate, it's a very strong word, but it drives him absolutely nuts, the side of me, because he'll come to me with an idea and I'm like, it's not going to work because there's this, this, and this. And have you considered that? And how are you going to solve this? And and what if this happens? And it, he's like, I just wanted you to be a cheerleader today. Like, like you know, I was so excited, you know, I, I you know, to share this. And was like, and then you just shot the thing down. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I can't. I literally cannot help it. Like, this is how my brain works. I see something, and then immediately I start. You know, it's like all the 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 brain cells start pinging and like, uh, yeah, I, I start thinking, ah, okay, but then this would happen and that's the consequence. And and this has been very helpful in my job in, in a professional setting. It's been absolutely brilliant because uh, it means that I can, you know, um, prevent a lot of risk, you know, um, I can uh, stop things from failing before they've even been, you know, properly designed. Um, but at the same time, you know, I do try and also find solutions and our brains are just uniquely wired, I think, to 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 be very creative. You know, uh, as neurodivergent people, we tend to be super creative. For some people, it might be in music, might be in writing, might be in um, in graphics, but it can also be in your problem solving. So it, it's it doesn't you know being creative is not just like in an artistic way. I, I really think that uh, in that businesses need creative minds, um, people who can have like so many different scenarios uh, all at once running through their brain and um, yeah, and, and just think of stuff that no one else uh, has has even considered. Um, you know, I think of like startups, you know, um, for example, or I would say any kind of tech company in the past decade or, or or even Century that's come up with super innovative ideas. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of neurodivergent people working in those companies because, you know, we just go where no other minds go sometimes. And sometimes that can fail massively. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, um, failure is really, um, I, I heard this on another podcast recently, failure really is gathering knowledge. You need to fail in order to learn new things and to prepare you for for uh, the next opportunity. So, uh, and I think that's another thing that ADHD people are good at is failing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like I like the idea, you know, when you were talking about all the different skills that we acquire on this sort of nonlinear paths, it reminds me of, of like the space shuttle, right? Where the space shuttle, they always, whenever they have, whenever they're assembling the crew for a space shuttle, it's like there's the teacher, there's the engineer, there's the scientist, there's the, the actor, like they, they try to bring together all the different skills so that everybody can approach these, you know, high stress situations differently. And I'm like, that's like the inside of our brain. Uh, was that Disney movie, right? With like all the different uh, personalities inside of our brain. I'm like, yeah, that's what it feels like. And also in terms of, you know, the having the response uh, when your husband was coming to you an idea, it was, it was reminding me of like how um, as often I find this in the neurodivergent community, there'll be like a, the question, which is like, are you just, do you, 
do you want to just vent right now? Do you want advice right now? Like sometimes it can be really helpful for us to have clarification when somebody comes to us and shares something where it's like, what response are you looking for so that that will affect how I listen? <laughs> and also that will affect, you know, that, you know, how this conversation moves forward. And it's really important for me to know that because I might, you know, I can't help myself. I might just want to like give you all the advice and tell you exactly what to do. And that might be the last thing you're looking for right now, or maybe it's what you're looking for right now. Uh, right. And so that, that kind of clarification, I think is something that we seek out and, and respond to a lot with neurodivergent brains. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates, so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me, so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you. Again, that's women and ADHD.com slash coaching. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one -on -one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey.
I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So the question I love to ask is, if you could rename ADHD to something a little less confounding, would you call it something else? Do you have something for it? 100% I would call it something else. I I think as so many of us that really struggle with words like deficiency or or disorder, you know, I I don't think it describes us well at all. Um, So I was actually thinking about this yesterday and um, uh, one that I came up with was um, emotional uh, resilient uh, outsider syndrome. Um, because I like when things spell something and it spells uh, Eros, which is the Greek god of love. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, the emotional side for sure, I think a lot of us will agree the emotional dysregulation is one of the hardest parts of uh, being ADHD, or at least I, I find it the hardest one. Uh, the resilient part, because I think we learn from a very young age to be more resilient because, you know, we we do get a lot of negative feedback. We fail at a lot of things, as I mentioned. So, but we also learn how to pick ourselves back up. I feel like we really are, you know, we don't like to get like let go. Like, you know, we I, I find that if I'm putting together some furniture or something, like I will not stop until I've done it and fixed it. Or if something's not working on my laptop I want to know how to fix it like you know so we're very resilient we, we don't just just kind of accept defeat very easily I think um and then the outsider bit it's also kind of it's not just that we are outsiders a lot of the time I think also just the outside of the box or as I like to say sometimes for us sometimes there is no box at all <laughs> and then the yeah I, I picked syndrome um you know I think I think it sounds a bit more gentle than uh, disorder. So yeah, it really is just a, a, a kind of a, a group of, of, of symptoms. So, you know, syndrome sounds about right. Uh, I don't want to call it disorder. It's not necessarily a superpower either. It can be, but you know, there, there are some really hard parts about it. So syndrome, it seems a bit more neutral and in the middle and it spells something cool. And why Eros and God of Love? I think we tend to love really hard. Like I, I find that, you know, it's we tend to really go all in a lot of the time. And also our love for people who are different, for things that are different. You know, we love the novelty. We like um, exploring, you know, new things. We we tend to be a lot more um, like less judgmental almost, you know, like I feel like we're just open minded because we know exactly what it's like to be different. So, yeah, that's that's why it just seemed like a nice symbolic <laughs> new naming. <laughs> I love it. Uh, absolutely. All, all of uh, I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. It, you know, it's funny when you talk about the judgment, it reminded me of, you know, your daughter and and my kids and, and some of the things that my husband and I struggle with or, or a lot of our anxiety around this diagnosis is who do we tell 
especially teachers, right? Because it's like, if I just sort of announce to these teachers, my child has ADHD, I have no idea what that means to them and what they're hearing, right? And so a lot of the time we really have to build up like, what are their needs right now? You know, instead of saying my child has ADHD, we say things like my child needs to sit at the front of the classroom or, you know, uh, you're going to have to repeat things or have them written, you know, and really like thinking in terms of the accommodations and, and what exactly are is needed versus be just saying, you know, they have this diagnosis, but sometimes it just, it gets out there because you need to get a 504 and, and it's out there and it's something you can't control. And I feel like that's something that we really struggle with, which is like, when is it, when is the right time to kind of live out loud with, with ADHD? A lot of people aren't comfortable with it for a lot of very valid reasons. And it's not something I honestly even thought about before I started this podcast and suddenly like announced to the world that I had this and I've had to kind of now live with like how I'm being perceived as a result. Uh, so I'm curious, like in terms of, you know, thinking about neurodiversity consultancy in, in, in the workplace, like, are you out loud about your ADHD at work or what would you recommend to somebody who is is thinking about like what do we what do accommodations even would they even look like for me like i'm always very like tread carefully and very slowly um but i also haven't worked for somebody in a very long time so it, i sometimes i feel like i that's really out of my league but like what would you kind of what are what's working for you so um i ha- haven't actually brought it up to my actual like HR person or even my manager because I got my diagnosis um, just after I actually started my my current um, assignment. But I have, for example, reached out to somebody at work because I could recognize some traits and I just kind of said, hey, uh, by the way, I'm, I have ADHD and this is why, I, you know, these are some of, just to kind of like, and it was just like, ooh, maybe I need to look into that. So um, I, 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 I tend to, just I, I'm quite open about it, I would say, outside of work. But now I, I do think that I, I want to have the conversation even at work because why not? And it's really more to raise awareness. I also am looking into um, doing consultancy around neurodiversity at work because, um, I mean, it's very topical, right? Diversity and inclusion. And, and we talk about um, breaking the glass ceiling. We talk about making it more inclusive for minorities. But when it comes to neurodiversity, there's still not a lot of awareness for a lot of companies. Um, you can see the odds, even sometimes really big companies who are actually running trials and special programs for neuro- neurodivergent workers. So that it, something is happening, but I think it's not nearly enough because uh, when you look at statistics of how many neurodivergent people are actually out of work, uh, especially in the autistic community for um, in particular, but even with ADHD people, we tend to suffer from burnout a lot more than neurotypicals. And um, there's a conversation that needs to be had because I think when you find the right space at your company for neurodivergent people, I, uh, I think it can be a real asset to the company and a real you know, learning experience as well. Um, you know, I talked about innovation, but I think it's also just as a society, we just need to learn to be more inclusive. And one thing in particular that I often uh, think of as the first, um, the first thing that that could do with some fixing is um, the recruitment process. You know, um, I when I uh, after the pandemic, I was like, okay, I really need to go, get back into work now. We just moved to Belgium. I was looking for new opportunities, and I I really struggled with the recruitment process of a lot of companies. Sometimes they're like four or five rounds. 
this is extremely hard for neurodivergent brains to go through. It feels extremely overwhelming. There are so many steps. It's very anxiety-inducing. It makes you second-guess yourself. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, uh, but even like if you look at uh, the job requirements in a lot of um, you know a lot of job descriptions, they the way they are phrased, they can seem very um, off-putting for neurodivergent brains. You know, because we know exactly what what our challenges are a lot of the time, even if we hide them very well, we know the things that we're going to struggle with. So I think a lot of the phrasing and and those job descriptions could uh, be more inclusive, not to scare neurodivergent people away. So I think that's the first hurdle. But then, you know, keeping the recruitment process a lot shorter, be a lot more transparent about exactly what the steps are, what will happen and when, what are we really uh, expecting? What's, you know, what will the job look like day to day? Um, having very, very clear goals, you know, anything vague just does not work for us. You know, um, in my current job, we work with sprints. So um, every week we have a sprint. I know exactly what the, the goals for that week are, the tasks, and and I know what is expected of me. I don't have to second guess, you know, oh, how how far am I on this six month or one year goal that they've set at the beginning of the year. I don't have to really think about it or use any of my mental uh, space for that. I know, okay, this week, this is exactly what needs to be done. That's that's what we're working towards. And, and it works extremely well. I think that's why a lot of us uh, tend to work in the tech space because that's where this agile way of working is, is very prevalent. Um, but yeah, it's it's more than, than can be said in this this um, this episode, I think. But uh, I think as a whole, um, we, we can do, just do so much better. Mm -hmm. If you're not yet ready to announce your diagnosis to everybody you meet, which absolutely is understandable, of course, um, I think, you know, developing the language, all the things we've talked about in terms of reframing, like all of those needs that we have in terms of recruitment process and like the, you know, some of those things that we might need, we can ask for, like diagnosis or not, right? These are things, and I think a lot of the diagnosis gives us that permission to sort of start building boundaries and start saying, okay, this is what I need, right? And, you know, and, and even like working remotely, so many, when everybody was working remotely, it was like such an ideal situation for an enormous <laughs> portion of the population. And now everybody wants to go back, go back into the office and there's, everybody's really resisting because of how, you know, suddenly Suddenly, this option was open to us to work from home. And it was like, why are you asking me to go back? Like, I need to understand the logic behind this decision. Is it just because you are paying for the real estate and you want us to come back? Or is there some real reason that I can like connect to? Uh, because I really like this other way. <laughs> and so I think there's been such interesting conversation around workplace environments right now about like how important it is to really come up with systems that make sense for your, how you work as opposed to just going along with the flow and being like, well, I have to do this because I'm afraid if I don't, I'm going to get fired. Right. And it's you're right. It's very complicated <laughs> and, and multi-layered. Um, but yeah, so fascinating to think about endlessly. Um, well, this has been so lovely. I'm so glad uh, we we arranged this. I'm so glad you reached out to me. Thank you. Such an interesting perspective, Miranda, and you know, wonderful nonlinear path that that we've taken. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess normally I kind of ask how people can reach out to you, but I, I'm not sure you're really in a public facing position, right? Uh, no, that's okay. Um, I actually thought about this. Um, you know, part of my 
impulsivity was like, oh, okay, let me find a domain <laughs> name and like start a website and get something ready um, because I have all these plans. Like I, you know, I, I do want to, um, you know, work towards becoming a diverse consultant. Uh, I also am looking towards getting uh, more qualified as an ADHD coach, for example. So I'm working towards all of that, but the, the real answer is uh, none of that is is ready as of today. If people do want to reach out to me with any question or you know project or anything they'd like me to get involved in, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, so that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Really, is uh, is on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you know, I know, right? I, I I'm the same way. I'm like. Um, I'm always trying to get certified for some new thing right now. And I'm always, you know, chasing a million different ideas. And I love it. I love it. It's just, you know, how can we, how can we harness that and, and live with that desire, but at the same time, also like have boundaries and, and do less. <laughs> uh, well, this has yes. been so wonderful. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I want to thank you for what you do because it has, you know, meant a world of difference to me after my diagnosis. Uh, just yeah, leading, hearing everyone's stories, it's helped me so much. So I'm glad I get to contribute in some small way today. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one -on -one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <music>